Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Open World Podcast. As always on this show, we try to inspire you with real stories of people taking action and doing extraordinary things around the world. In that vein, I'm joined today by Grady Hicks. He's the author of The Amazing Journey, which is a story of his travels with his young son, Austin. Uh, whenever his, his three children graduate high school, he takes them on a round-the-world trip. And this particular trip was 28 days, 24,000 miles, 22 UNESCO World Heritage Sites, and uh, 12 countries and cultures. Grady here, ever since a young age, has marched to the beat of his own drum. He has been curious about the world since a very young age, and he also started a bit his own business in 1999, which is a very large family-owned business in Texas. So Grady, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot, Danny. So perhaps you could introduce yourself and tell me a little bit more about your backstory and biography. How did it mesh together to, uh, how did it culminate in this amazing journey? Well, you know, when my first son graduated high school, uh, actually, I'll give credit to my wife. Uh, she said, instead of us taking a big family journey, uh, why don't the two of you set out and do something just wonderful? And so my son and I sat in the backyard, and uh, we looked over a map and discussed things, and he really didn't know what to suggest, uh, didn't know what to ask, was grateful for whatever. And at the time, and we still do, we enjoyed watching the uh, the show The Amazing Journey, I mean The Amazing Race, which had teams race around the world. And we liked seeing where they went, what they did. And I said, why don't we create our own? And uh, let's just go all the way around the world. And we'll stop in, in different locations and do off-the-chart, rugged experiences, really immerse ourselves authentically in the city and country and the region and learn a little bit about it. And, uh, and then we'll get on a plane and take off and go to the next stop and uh, get all this done. And we'll, we will do this inside a month. So we packed everything for 28 days in a single backpack and gave ourselves a little bit of rules and some structure. And that's exactly what we did. We just went out and discovered and learned and absorbed as much as we possibly could in those 28 days. Was it as easy as making that decision? Oh my gosh, no. <laughs> it took us it took so long to to decide where to go and then laying out the plan took uh it took about a year to put the whole thing together. Um, you know, I had to look at what interested my son and what had interested him up to being 18 and what it looked like, the path that he was taking going forward. And then I wanted to also throw in some other things that being a parent and an adult that he may need to know and should experience to prepare him for college and life beyond. Uh, so that's what we did with his trip. And actually with his brother that was in 2013 and then his sister in 2015, we just completed her around the world trip uh, July 15th. And she is now set off to college as well. Yeah, I think you're competing for the uh, coolest father award here. Well, there's a, there's, there's a lot of great ones out there. Uh, I may be okay, but there's, uh, there's a lot in front of me, but thanks. Did, did you have a travel uh, background before you planned these trips, or was it just a big like leap that you guys took together? 
Well, actually, you know, my grandmother took myself and my then-girlfriend, who is now my wife, on a uh, trip through Europe 23 days when we graduated high school. Uh, I don't know that uh, it was so much in her mind to really get us ready for college and life like mine was, but the point was is we did it. And, uh, and we have traveled as a family uh, quite a bit together. Uh, now, a lot of it's, you know, the Caribbean and, and places like this, but when we go to those spots— even for an afternoon or a, or a day, I will make sure that we step away from the coastal resorts and get into the community itself. Uh, I do like to do that. Uh, and then growing up with my grandmother, actually, we traveled around the world, a lot around the world together. We went to a lot of different places. Not anything to this expanse or this large, but a lot of different places. So I guess it's been in my blood. And I take it that you credit the, that early travel as sort of a formative experience. Has it developed uh, who you are? I think it has because it's interesting that I started traveling with her at, at 12. And about every year or so, we went on a fairly large trip somewhere, and several were international. Uh, now, they weren't Tibet or Cambodia or Africa or something like that like the, like the kids did, but they were still big and expressive. Um, and then I just picked up through, I guess, osmosis, uh, a lot about different people and the way they live their lives uh, around the world to the, to the point, to the point that actually Danny in 1997, when, uh, the world was, I didn't talk to anybody about this, but when the, when the, when the International Olympic Committee was looking for cities to host the 2012 Olympic Games, uh, I founded and put together an effort to uh, involve the Dallas-Fort Worth in that hunt for the United States candidate city. And we did that for about five and a half years very successfully. So that international aspect, I guess, is just in my veins and always has been. And traveling has shown me the importance of that. You mentioned that the the overall purpose of these trips, uh, before the call you mentioned that the purpose of these trips was to introduce your children to the world and, and the community at large. Um, would you say that it was, it was kind of an educational aspect? Was that your, your motive? Well, kind of in a background way, it was, yeah. But, um, you know, when they're 18 and you're going with a parent and you're side-by-side side for 28 days, you do need to keep it uh, exciting and adventurous and such. So we had that aspect uh, kind of riddled throughout the trip. But it's just the point that you're going to some of these fantastic places themselves uh, grab attention. When you're staring at Mount Everest, when you are looking at the Taj Mahal or Angkor Wat or the Sydney Harbor Bridge or something like that, that's, those are impactful, powerful moments without having to do something so grand. But uh, I had to plan for, and I did put in on each trip, something that had that adventure hook that would keep them interested so it wouldn't be just monastery fatigue and history fatigue and, and things of that nature. I didn't want to lose them. I wanted them to get a full perspective. So I had to mix it up when I planned the trips with all kinds of and a variety of different activities. Yeah, it sounds like a dream. I mean, you know, see Mount Everest, uh, visit Angkor Wat, do some of these things that you mentioned. I mean, when I was a young man, I remember dreaming about all these things and, and uh I had to go do it on my own, you know, I had to, to plan everything out, but I had a lot of uh, fear, you know, I had a lot of um, doubts, and, and I know that you had to encounter that as well. You're certainly much more methodical than I am, I mean, you plan these, these well in advance, opposite of, I, of me, but 
<laughs> I know that you, you had a lot of questions and uh, fears going on through your mind. Can you, can you walk me through that? What were you afraid of? Uh, probably, which is an odd thing, because we're a tight family of five. Uh, but it still concerned me that, you know, here is each one of my children that I know well, and I've done things with them at a young age individually um, for a while, whether it be a night out or a weekend out or whatever. But still, 28 days side by side, uh, I wanted that to be a positive experience. I didn't want us to get into four days and they're, you know, a teenager graduating, ready to go to college and having to be concerned that, I'm going to give them life lessons for four straight weeks. So I had to I had to ratchet that back and make the dance along with them. And you know, it that was one of the largest fears of the whole thing is uh, not necessarily alienate them. It wasn't that because that was a long way off, but it was uh, just becoming so structured and unfun that they didn't really get an impact. And all that this was was just a lark around the world with dear old dad. And I didn't want that. I really wanted them to understand what they were seeing and doing and knowing and knowing, Danny, that it was going to be something that would unfold and unveil itself for decades to come as they grew into different stages of their life. But I had to make sure I did it correct as we were going on the trip. And, and so what was the, the correct way? Well, the correct way is just being flexible. You know, uh, you know, while we had a plan every day, we had an agenda. We had to uh, be ready to, if we were tired, uh, to back off a little bit. If, uh, uh, if if there's something else that caught our eye, mine or either one of my children's, then let's go see what that's about and maybe give up some of the structure that I had put into place. But the structure gave us a roadmap to work through our day and work through our weeks. So that way we didn't waste time or just come to a standstill and miss some great things. And then, you know, we just made it fun. We made what we had to do a fun experience uh, when we, because I set up tasks and challenges for us to do every single day. So even though we were uh, going to go walk the Great Wall, it was more than that. It was, you know, what direction are we going to go and, you know, what tower are we going to go to? And this is what we must do to do that. And when we come down, we have to go on a toboggan or do we go this way? We, we just gave ourselves different options and opportunities. So even the ordinary uh, seemed exciting because it kept us engaged with what we had pre-planned. So you set a lot of goals and you just, just went around uh, achieving those goals, basically. Yeah, I tried to. Yeah, I tried to. I mean, we, and for the most part, we, we hit everything that we were going to do. Uh, we had, uh, you know, a website set up uh, where family and friends followed along, and it was in each morning at 6 o'clock, it would upload and unveil where we were, and what we would be doing. Uh, the first trip, nobody knew. I mean, nobody knew where we were going and what we were doing, including my wife. I mean, nobody. And it was part of the fun is, you know, what what were we up to? And then it would, it would open up this list of activities that we had planned. And then we would have choices. We either do this or we do that. So it kept, you know, my following interested in what we were going to do and if we could accomplish it. Uh, to say that was stressful, especially for my gracious wife, is an understatement, uh, but it was engaging for everybody else. But we accomplished most of the things that we tried. Now, sometimes we couldn't. Uh, we tried to visit the, the Drak Yerpa Caves uh, outside of Lhasa, Tibet, 
And we were there at a time in 2011 where the Chinese were, uh, the Chinese government was uh, uh, wanting to hold a celebration in Lhasa for the uh, 60-year, uh, what do they call that? It was a liberation of Tibet, the celebration to liberate Tibet, uh, as they say. And because of that, and because we were Americans, uh, many times we were considered foreign sympathizers. And the ability to go um, explore around, we were unable to. There was too many watchful eyes, and uh, the Chinese government was very, very cautious of us doing that. So we missed some things there, but a lot of other times we did, and we were able to accomplish. And then new ones would pop up that we would go explore too. So tell me more about some of the, the highlights of these trips. I mean, you, you've kind of dropped a, a few pieces of, of tantalizing info here. You mentioned Lhasa. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Bagan. You mentioned Angkor Wat. Uh, tell, me, tell me more about some of your, your favorite experiences. I, I'm really curious to, to know. Well, i got to tell you, you know, that when you're talking about the first one in 2011, um, a, a big, big piece of it was uh, the plan to go from Lhasa to Mount Everest. The easy thing for us to do is to take a plane from Lhasa and go to Kathmandu because that was going to be our next stop, Kathmandu, Nepal. But I had talked with Austin ahead of time, and I said, if you want to try this, we can. It's about a six-day adventure, but we will leave Lhasa in a uh, land cruiser 4x4, and we will make our way to the Tibet side base camp, and we'll just see if we can see Mount Everest. I mean, the odds are low because it stays shrouded in clouds most of the time. Do you want to do that? And then if we do that, we're going to need to leave. And then we'll drive across the Himalayas, and we'll just drive on into Nepal. It was quite a commitment. He says, no, I want to do that. That's one of my top three things that I want to do. I said, okay. So we did it. And uh, the experiences there, Danny, that's, boy, that is, uh, that that was an amazing set of days uh, being out there. And the point that we got to Mount Everest, it was clear, but it, the, 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 the mountain was cloudy. Uh, but right about 5 o'clock, as the sun was going down, uh, the clouds opened up just enough to where we could get a nice picture, a clear vision of the mountain. And it was just awe-inspiring. I mean, it's one of these legendary world figures that you've read about and heard about for uh, all your life. And then there it is, right there. We're staring at it. And... Uh, the next morning we get up, before we leave, because we're just leaving out the next morning, get up at 7 o'clock. I can't sleep. I'm just searching for coffee and warmth, too, for a, for a Texan in June. That's, <laughs> it's zero degrees, and I'm cold. And I'm wandering around. I walk outside the tent, and, Danny, this, this mountain is crystal clear. There are no clouds of any kind in front of it. I just sat there and stared, could not believe that there it was. And that came to the realization that here I am at 18,000 feet, and I'm looking at a full-size mountain that still goes two miles into the sky. It's just an unbelievable sight to see how big this thing is. That was a, a rewarding experience. It was a gamble. You don't know if you're going to get to see something like that, but we did. That was one of just many, many on his trip, but uh, that's one that comes to mind first. What do you feel like when you're in that moment? You know, you're, you know, in a way, each one is a little bit different. Um, I was a little humbled. It was like it was like winning the lotto that uh, we all hope to get. I mean, the odds of seeing that were so slim. But there we had it. And instead of putting money in my pocket, 
you know, I'm walking off with a memory and experience that is just, uh, you know, it goes deep into your soul. And then by chance, that same trip, he and I were in uh, Paris, and we went to Notre Dame just to see the, the cathedral. We were there on a Sunday. And they, they opened up the, as we made our way towards the, to the front, uh, the priest came over because it just happened to be that communion was beginning. And they opened up the velvet rope to whoever wanted to come through. And uh, I studied that as a child. So I went in and received communion where kings of many nations for centuries have stood. It was a, that was a phenomenal moment. Uh, we were in Agra, India at the Taj Mahal on the one day of the year based on a lunar calendar, not a Gregorian, uh, where they actually open up the bottom of the Taj Mahal where the, the, the sarcophagus or the coffins of uh, Shah Jahan actually and his wife actually are, not the ones that are the replicas above ground, but the actual ones. And it was an amazing thing that we got to see that. So many things like that come, came across on all three of these journeys. It was fabulous. It must be that point where you're, you're like, this is it. I'm living the dream, basically. Well, you, you are, you, and yeah. you just look around. And then the thing about it, too, is when we go on these trips, we try, and I try to tell the kids, and it takes a day or two for them, or actually probably a few more days, to kind of get into the, the pace of it. But uh, once you really just kind of let go and you just let the journey itself take over, it almost is its own tour guide and takes you into some wondrous situations. And, and that happened really with all three. It was a, it was an interesting thing just to kind of experience that because you just kind of sit back and you know, we just came into all kinds of things on, on Brianna's, on Brianna's trip. Um, it was June 28th, 29th. It was this year. So it's still a topic that you could search on the internet pretty easily, but we're there in Istanbul uh, going to search for cough medicine and uh, on our way to search for cough medicine, they, they're winding down, I think it was the Gay Pride Parade that was going on at Istanbul. It's an annual event that they do every year. And being a mostly Muslim country, uh, it, they are, tend to be kind of conservative. Well, we didn't know. We were just walking trying to find cough medicine. But uh, the police uh, really were not in favor of this, even though there was nothing going on. It was very peaceful. We saw no problems, no actions. Uh, but as we're walking, we just sense an issue. So we step to the side and just observe. And she's 18, you know, so she's big-eyed and looking around. So I'm pointing out things for her to be aware of in the future. As we're looking in front of us, there's a big crowd, but there's nothing happening, just a big crowd, and we know that it's an issue. There are police with riot gear all over the place waiting for a problem. And we turn to look behind us as we're looking forward to this crowd. And we turn to look behind us, Danny, and there is a riot truck driving right down the avenue. And on either side are police in riot gear with their shields up and their masks are coming down. And for no reason whatsoever, water cannons hit us, tear gas was shot, and rubber bullets went in the air. So, I mean, I grabbed her as fast as I could, and we luckily got right behind the riot truck and got on out. But you know what? That's traveling. But that was a, a it's just an interesting cultural experience that when you get out there, sometimes you run across. What, what happened? Why was the riot uh, police out there? As we found out later, um, it was... Uh, 
you know, and this was through, you know, some guides and such, but they, they're pretty savvy and pretty smart. The, the, uh, apparently the, whoever was in, in charge, either it be the, on the, on the politics side or somewhere, uh, didn't want trouble. So the proactive step was to disperse the crowd so that they wouldn't turn into an issue. And we just kind of got caught up in it, but we got out of it before it was a problem. People in our hotel, there's a couple of Americans in our hotel that were down doing something, the same thing. We were looking for cough medicine. They're probably looking for a place to eat. I don't know. But they said, yeah, they said, yeah, we got hit with some of those rubber bullets. And they were kind of laughing about the whole thing. It's, but that's just difference. It's just difference in society is the way people approach and look at things. It was a good experience for her. It was a tricky one. It was a little scary there for a minute. But, uh, but that is traveling and getting outside the bounds of what we know, at least when I'm speaking of the United States and sometimes Western cultures. But that's the purpose of those, these three trips is to expose them to many, many different ways of life, many different religious uh, viewpoints, uh, customs and, and, and thoughts. Uh, not necessarily saying anybody's right or wrong, but just posing the question that they're different. Yeah, that's really unexpected and pretty wild that you just get caught up in the middle of uh, kind of a small, uh, would you say riot or just kind of like a rally? Well, it was a rally, a rally. but it was a peace, it was a peaceful <laughs> rally. Uh, but it was a peaceful rally that you know, and sometimes rallies, I guess, can get a little loud. I can remember from my college days a few rallies here and there, and people throw their opinions out when they're when they're loud. And I believe I need to back this up with uh, with stats, but I was told that a lot of the Turks are young. Uh, so you have a large population that is younger. So they've got, you know, a lot of bravado, so to speak. So it may have been uh, agitated and a little uh, higher. And of course, you're in a you're in a religious community that is a little hesitant with that. Um, so I guess that's part of the proactivity of wanting to, to to squash it. But yeah, that was a uh, that was interesting. But we weren't there long. We we pretty much packed up bags and left. What what else was unexpected during your travels? What has thrown you for a loop? Well, um, you know we've that, that's that's they're all they're all different. The ones that that that, that throw us. Uh, we've come close to missing several trains and airplanes and and, and things like that. Uh, we've had some, I guess, a soul jarring moment uh, that was unexpected was the impact of walking through the killing fields in Cambodia. Uh, it's one thing to hear about it, to, to kind of understand genocide. It's a it's a it's a it's a it's a word that is thrown around on TV. You see it, but we're just it's through the TV, so you just don't get it. But you walk around and you're walking around with a guide that is, you know, I'm 49, so the guide is about my age too, mid 40s. These guys lived through it. They were children when they did, so they're telling their story as we're walking through the killing fields. And as we're going, I mean, these this is uh, these are mass murder uh, places where people of all kinds, and it didn't matter who they were. But, but it, well, I, I take that back, Danny. It did. If they were educated, it mattered because that was part of what the Khmer Rouge did. They were trying to wipe out the educate the educated people and, and create a different society. But when we're walking through here, uh, and so far they've only exhumed, I don't know, around nine thousand. They think that there could be as many as a half a million in this in this uh, particular. Uh, killing field, and there are several around Cambodia. Uh, we're walking along, and it right at our feet, right at our feet, were human bones that were still working their way to the surface. 
with their clothing still wrapped around them. I mean, these are people that were just discarded as you and I might throw away a paper cup, and they're right there. So when you're you're seeing that and you and you hear the story from the guide of what they endured and how they're sitting at a dinner table, soldiers come in and they take the father away and they never see him again, it, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable to walk through that and understand even though it's so, so quiet and so, so respectfully still, how at one time in our generation that was a horrible, sad, loud uh, place. And uh, that so things of that nature come up, too. And there's also some wonderful things, too, but those are the unexpected that really get into your bones. What else did you personally take away from that experience? Well, you know, that one, uh, that particular one, the Killing Fields, and uh, we also went to S-22 prison as well. Um, you know, I, what I took away from that was at the end of the trip, because that was in Phnom Penh, which is the capital of Cambodia. And we had spent a couple of days, this was both with my, with my girl, my daughter, this trip, and then my son in 2013. They had an overlap in Cambodia. And uh, they had a very similar path that they went. So we were up at Siem Reap, in Angkor Wat. We, we went out to the country and met some of the gentle farmers and some of the, the people. And then we go to Phnom Penh, the capital, and we learn some of the history behind the Khmer Rouge. And, you know, then you start putting that together about how these, these simple, very sublime people, um, you know, how they were treated. And, and to look at their eyes now, they, uh, they've, they, they've sort of forgiven. They're getting past it. Uh, a lot of wounds, but they're they're but they're oh the uh, the, the generosity had had great the Cambodian people I can't talk enough about them they're fantastic I mean they really are uh, I go back to Cambodia in a heartbeat just to be around these people, but what they wanted to do is they want to they want to they want to show off their country I mean they want to they know that that's there but they're interested in showing it off and I really took away how they moved beyond uh, the times of the past. These people have to live with a constant reminder of what happened and, and a reminder of their own mortality, you know, just, just how, how brutal life can be. And I think a lot of us in the first world countries, we don't uh, ever really have to consider that, that issue. No, we don't. And I'll tell you, you know, you, you, you have fun of thinking, well, while you're over there, did you eat spiders? Did you eat crickets and such? And that's still available. Uh, you can still find, especially in the more rural countryside, but it's the story behind why they did that. I mean, nobody sets out to do that uh, unless you're, you know, a tribe that, you know, is on maybe a, a small island. That's just what you knew. But there they did it to survive. I mean, those were people that were given uh, a paltry amount of rice every day to eat, and they were expected to work 12 to 16 hours a day. So they, to get nutrition, they began to eat bugs, and it just has stayed with them since. And they've, you know, uh, they've learned how to make them better, but it's still, it's something that, yeah, you and I and a lot of other people may not quite understand that there was a little bit more to it. Yeah, yeah, it's quite the story. I've been to Cambodia a few times myself, um, and I've also been to Tual Slang, like you mentioned, and I went there with my ex-girlfriend, and, and I just remember the, the feeling of coming out of that place, and... Um, it really kind of opens your eyes, and, and you realize that you know I'm, I'm not going to live forever. You know this this could happen. Anything could happen in this life. And like you said, it's it's amazing to consider that it happened during your generation. 
so many times we just, you know, we hear these things and they're 200 years ago, but it's the point that something so brutal yeah. happened 40 years ago. And then, you know, you start scratching your head and then there's still, unfortunately, genocides that happen today. It's just, you know, you look around and it's amazing as human beings, we have made it this far, but it's, but I have appreciated, I really appreciate how the Cambodians have responded and rebounded. Um, you know, that's, uh, they have done it, and they have a lot to share. Uh, Phnom Penh is a fantastic city. I love the river, the riverfront street, which is right in front of the Tonle Sap River. That is a that's a vibrant place uh, with all kinds of activity. I mean, it looks like any great city's street, but I mean, it's it's fantastic. It's a couple of miles long with with bars and, and restaurants and, and, and activities. And the side streets have uh, a whole arts district that is going and with, with independent artists. It's fantastic. I did not expect that. I saw that for my first time in 2013 with uh, my, my second son. And then I introduced that to Brianna this year because I thought it was a phenomenal thing to see so many different perspectives of that one country. And that's part of travel. There's a lot of perspectives to a lot of different countries, a lot of different ways of life once you get out there and look. Yeah, that's what's really fascinating about Phnom Penh is the, the center of the city is so traditional and um, you have like the palace, you have temples there and you have parks there. It's, it's really quite nice. And uh, I, I have fond uh, memories of uh, at those parks, you know, everybody comes out and, and they have like, you know, big dance uh, parties in the park where like 100 people will be dancing together and stuff. And it's just, it's just such uh, shameless, uh, innocent fun, you know. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a model. It's a model to, to, to I don't how you I don't how you move that to other places, but uh, it's 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 a wonderful moment to be caught up in. And it's it's just you know like if if you're at home and you don't get out and see the world, you're kind of just stuck with your own mindset, I guess. And if you kind of go and experience something like that, and, and you realize that you know it's this is what life's about. You know, just just enjoy yourself, have fun. Don't don't take yourself so seriously because. Uh, you know, life is fragile, and you just got to make the most of it. I think. Yeah, anytime, and I always uh, recommend anytime that you go. And there's a lot of, you know, obviously a lot of my, you know, friends that uh, that can they they save up and they go to uh, Jamaica. Uh, popular, wonderful, uh, interesting culture they're out there. But while you're there in the grill or Montego Bay or whatever, just take a day, a half a day, and go into the city. Hire a good quality. Uh, cab driver, whatever, find you a guide if you have to, but usually the hotels can find a really solid cab driver that will take you out for half a day fairly inexpensively and really kind of show you uh, the the back side of the city and, and how it operates. Uh, I encourage us and anybody, go to a grocery store. I mean, nobody goes to a grocery store, but you really see how the people work. And then when you're in Southeast Asia, you go to markets because that's the grocery store. But you get a sense and a feel about how people approach their daily lives by just looking on the store shelves and watching what they, you know, what they do. And then go eat in a local restaurant, one where that particular uh, that is safe and such, but still, and you 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 walk away with a little bit more of a taste of the city and a little bit more in your pocket that you carry for many many years. I think that's important to do, no matter where you are. You can do it anywhere. Yeah, it's a fantastic point. I think a lot of people try to just pack as much into their itinerary, you know, and go through tour companies and and don't actually like feel the pulse of life. And I was I was nodding, thinking about my own experience when I went to this really random place in Indonesia. It's, uh, it's called Sebolga, and it's in Sumatra. And um, 
basically, I, I had nothing to do all day because I was waiting for a ship uh, to take me to one of the islands, and uh, I just hired this this Beitsha driver. It's like a tuk-tuk driver, and he, I said, take me up to this mountain. I want to get a view of the, the town. So he took me up there. I, I bought him some uh, tea when we were up there. We had tea together, and then he was he was inspired. He took me back to his his home and his neighborhood, and I'm sitting there with all the children, and the whole neighborhood's coming out to meet me and stuff, and it was, it was just such a cool experience and something that you can't really plan for or, or buy from a, a tour company. That know? is a home run moment. I bet, I bet all the things that you did, I bet that's probably one of your top three or four mo- moments that you remember that whole trip. And that's, that is fantastic right there. It really is. Yeah. And it's, it's just something that uh, you, you can't really plan for. And it's just something you just have to embrace and you have to let these, these things come to you. You have to be willing to accept what, what the world has, what life has to offer you. Exactly, exactly. And it's a, a personal mantra of all, all three of our trips is while we do have uh, an itinerary, uh, so that way we don't just, you know, we stay flexible enough to see where it will take us and what just seems to be fitting right. I'll tell you uh, another one, I, you know, Danny, I don't mean to sidetrack some questions that you have because you have some great questions. Uh, on the first trip, the, the very first stop of all places, touristy Honolulu. Um, Austin and I went in 2011, and uh, I did a little research. I mean, to, to, to do some of this, you want to do a little research ahead of time, too, so you want to be prepared. And uh, we found a very authentic place to eat away from, you know, Waikiki Hotel Row. Uh, we got out a place called Helena's uh, Kitchen, which is uh, actually it's been on the Food Network a lot. It's been discovered now, but it's still just away from everything, and they make authentic, original recipes to the island and to the culture. So we ate there and had a wonderful time. And then from there we left and we discovered another place called uh, Mariana Yacht Club. All right, Mariana Yacht Club is its hard to find. It's uh, kind of out of the way a little bit. You're still in Honolulu. It's in between Pearl Harbor and, and, and the, and the Waukehee Beach area. But anyway, we found it. We went in, and it's Polynesian culture head to toe. It's a kind of a bar that sits on the area, so you have a lot of boats that are tied and moored and such. And we go in, and just, we don't know what we're going to expect. We just wanted to kind of go in and take, you know, just have a little dinner and just kick back and enjoy the culture and where we were for the moment. As it happened to be, we were there on the night that a local singing group of, uh, you want to say elderly, but they were, um, you know, they're, uh, most people in the 70s and 80s, they come and take over this place. And they've done this for 20 years. And they just take over. They've got a mic. They bring in, uh, you know, a little bit of, little bit of minor amount of sound equipment. And for an hour and a half, we sat there and watched this one MC that was on a keyboard and was good call up different members of this uh, kind of eclectic group that I guess meets there. And they sang different ballads all night long. Danny, it was unbelievable. They all could sing. They were all great. But it was a, just a great, fantastic moment to get caught up in. And uh, because we were there, and you know, they were, there weren't a whole lot of guests, like a Thursday night, they just kind of took us in, and we became their guests, too. And it was, a, it was just a fun moment. It's that stuff you can't plan. But if you stay flexible and maybe not so, all right, well, we're going to go do this touristy thing. We're going to go to this touristy place to eat. We're going to do this touristy thing after that. If you open it up, sometimes the greatest moments will develop. 
sounds like you have uh, quite a lot of stories, and you must be the envy of everyone back home. Um, what is it? What is it you think that, that separates uh, what you do, and, and what what is it that holds pe- people back, most people back from uh, doing this themselves? Yeah, you know, I kind of wonder if it is uh, the the cost. And when I say cost, it's some people that haven't traveled much might look at it as a waste of money because they're thinking, well, you know. Um, here is, I don't know, let me just pick a number of $1,000. Why why do I spend $1,000 for two or three days in this place? And yeah, the beach was nice and such, but I can just camping and, and all that. Uh, why waste that money? Because then it's gone. It's only for a couple of days. And I understand that point. Um, and camping is fantastic. I mean, I'm not knocking anybody goes camping. If that's what you can do, then go camping. Go is the point. Just go and uh, be with your family, your friends, what have you. But if you can, uh, the experience of stepping out and just living a different culture's way, even for a couple of moments, really can impact you. And then what I have found through a lot of traveling is those stories are retold over and over and over at dinner tables, whether it be me and my wife or me and my children. And that makes the value of that $1,000 be $5,000 because we talk about it forever and ever and ever. Remember this. You remember when this happened? When this is a crazy moment? And it, it reminds us of, some, of something else. So I think that's one of them. I think another part is that some people are very fearful of the world out there right now. And, yeah, it's a little dicey in some places. You've got to be smart. Uh, know that that should uh, completely dissuade you from going out and experiencing something new and unique. If you're new to it, start somewhere relatively easy and simple. Uh, but I would still encourage you to go. I mean, but there's so many things. I mean, there's so many places that you go. And in camping, for example, in Texas, camping, um, you can you can be creative with camping uh, here in our state because there's a lot of different uh, uh, different cultures here even. You know, we have a large Czech community. We have a large German community, obviously Spanish and Mexican. Uh, but you could, you could create a, a two-week camping adventure around the state in some very specific, fantastic parts, parks and then go out for the day into those German communities and really get a sense of some of their heritage when they moved here. That can be done. So somebody that doesn't really want to go on an airplane and go overseas or something like that, you can still get an international flavor in your own state or region, do a little research and find out where those pockets are and, and jump in. They'll accept you. They usually do with wide open arms that you want to learn about them. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, that's really interesting. You brought up the, the money question. You said it seems like a waste of money. And I, I think that money is only a means to an end. And I think people tend to treat money as the end, as, as if it's kind of the, the be-all, end-all point of existence for their life. And I, I, I really kind of take issue with that. And I've, I've also heard a quote regarding travel that uh, travel is the only thing that you buy that makes you richer. Would you agree with that? I, I would completely agree with that. I've never heard it. I like it. I'm going to have to use that. I'm going to quote it as a, as a Danny original until we can find the source, but I like it. <laughs> um, so let me ask you, how have you and your children changed as a result of all of your experiences and adventures? Can you uh, expand on that? Yeah, that's a real good question. Um, but all three have come back with a a far deeper and greater appreciation, especially on the field of education, of what we have in the States um, 
and it, and it and it's just sometimes people just take it with such a cavalier, granted for attitude, where places that we have gone would do everything they can to be educated. There are children and families that are motivated to try to learn because they want to learn. They know how important it is. We're here. You know, it's just every corner, so people just kind of uh, sashay their way through and just don't care, or maybe just, you know, it's whatever. Uh, A lot of these other countries, it is not that way. That is uh, a momentous thing for them to be able to speak some English or understand or know something. It's it's powerful to be educated. So they've all taken that... um, to heart, uh, my son is uh, my first. My firstborn in 2011 uh, has consistently been on the dean's list at uh, the University of Oklahoma, and, and, and may end up going into the the medical field, be a doctor. I mean, it was a big impact to him. Uh, my my second son, the same way. His was more. Uh, his stuck with the the Cambodians and more of the the moral issues of living. Um, my daughter is going to study to be an elementary edu- uh, educator. Uh, so she immediately latched on to the education aspect and was uh, adamant about going to schools and visiting. So we did that because I think as a, as a traveler, um, you take and you learn and you put in your pocket all these experiences. But I think it's also important that you give back. So on each one of the trips, we have done that, even though it's small, but we have given back in some way uh, along along the route. And that's been beneficial on, I think, both both sides of the uh, of the equation. But that has been a, that has it's been a very big impact. And from my, and speaking for myself, when I went way back in 1984, uh, I still pull from a lot of those experiences, uh, a lot of different things that I saw. And it wasn't anything like you know, uh, you know, Tibet or uh, India or you know some of these places. But it was still an important thing. And I think that that will unveil itself with through their lives and through their children's life for a lot of years. But the instant impact was uh, a greater appreciation of what we have and especially a focus on education. Um, all three of them saw it. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think that this experience will have a, a lasting formative effect on your children's lives over the long term, especially um, at that age, you know, that tender age of 18 uh, you know, the, that those, those years from 18 to about uh, 24, 25, I mean, those are some of the most difficult and challenging years of a person's life because they have to face a lot of big questions about, you know, who I am, or who am I, you know, what's, what's my purpose here, uh, what am I, you know, where, where do I fit in the world? And, and to just be able to open their eyes and expose them to all this, I think it's, it's really rewarding. I know that when I was that age, you know, I had a lot of... Uh, you know, doubts and fears and things that I had to, to deal with. And I didn't have, like, uh, I felt like I didn't have any good mentors at the time. Um, but it wasn't really until I traveled that I was able to kind of realize that, you know, mentorship is everywhere. Uh, there's, there's amazing people all around the world that, that can, can teach you something. Uh, I would completely agree with that. And it's the, it is the, the most subtle of situations sometimes that will. Um, you know, I remember when we were, uh, and this was a I don't know, a 30-second story, but it still hangs with me. We're just walking along with a guide that's showing us around, which is nice. And then this uh, young lady approaches the guide, and uh, the guide approaches us. And uh, the guide comes over and says, uh, this is the granddaughter of that man standing over there under the tree. He was kind of kind of silently away with his hat in his hand. And uh, 
he is wanting to know if he can get a picture with you two. We said, well, yeah, of course, sure, no problem at all. So he came over um, very politely, uh, not wanting to take any more of our time, and we he stood there and took a picture with us, and he just politely nodded, and they went along, 30 seconds. And um, I thought about that and thought about that. And, of course, the Chinese now are just now starting to get out and really explore and explore their country. And the older Chinese, a lot of them, uh, have, have never been out anywhere. And this was a man that was probably in his 70s. And uh, I thought, you know, he wanted to be take a picture with Westerners or Americans. And I thought, perhaps to him, we represented many, many different things. Maybe things that were in a a movie or a TV show. I don't know. I don't have any idea. But he wanted to take a picture with us. And that was quite moving because it reminded me of the responsibility of when we travel, the way we need to conduct ourselves as visitors in other countries. Uh, And also be respectful of where they come from and the way we may be viewed. Just as when people come here, I have a certain... Uh, I guess, uh, general thought or, you know, something of, of who they are and what they've been. Uh, they had that of us. And it was uh, an interesting, very poignant moment. Yeah, I think you mentioned in your book also that um, you were really surprised by the acceptance of people, especially in a place like China, um, of how welcoming and accepting they were of Americans. And that actually reminded me of uh, something I heard from another I recently did a book review of a book called Chasing 193, and it's uh, it's interviews of people who have traveled to every country on Earth. And one of the guys said that one of his most surprising travel experiences was uh, traveling to the Soviet Union during the Cold War and how uh, when he was in Moscow, for, for instance, when people learned that he was American, they insisted on uh, you know paying for the, the, the cab themselves, and, and they were just kind of giving him all this generosity and hospitality. And he didn't expect that... Um, you know, the respect and, and care of Americans in the Soviet Union would be so high during a moment like the Cold War. So it was, it was pretty high-opening. Yeah, uh, we've seen that in all three trips as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's humbling, uh, and again, it uh, lumps a whole lot of responsibility on us as visitors and, uh, and such. But yeah, I have, I have seen that a lot. Back when that, uh, that story I told you about in Istanbul, when we were walking into this huge pedestrian street, and it's called the... Uh, Oh, I, I'm gonna. If I say it, I'm gonna mess it up. It's uh, Istalal Kadarsi. Uh, that's not correct. I'm not somebody that's gonna hear that's gonna go, oh my gosh. Anyway, it is uh, this, this huge pedestrian avenue, and uh, what, there's a lot of streets to feed into it. So when we walked up to it, they had uh, their police at every single street blocking it. I had no idea what was going on. But when they saw us, they waved us through. I mean, it was that we were able to walk in as if we were no threat. Um, and, uh, and again, there's a responsibility with that to, to, to not act up and, and, and to, to follow the, the procedures of a, of a country. Even though you may not necessarily agree with them, you're still a visitor there. It's like being around somebody's dinner table. You go over to their house, you might not necessarily agree with what they do or that, but you're still a guest there. So it's, uh, it, was, it was interesting, and, I've, and I've, I've seen grace through all kinds of cultures uh, uh, without being stereotyped one way or the other. That's been very, very rewarding. Exactly, and I, I think that traveling has made me less quick to judge other people and uh, more patient with people and just kind of more generous in general, just, just willing to, to help someone without expecting anything in return. Um, I think that's that's kind of the formative aspect that travel has on me because 
Um, I've, I've received so much hospitality when I visited other countries, some locals. So, well, that was uh, that was a point. One of there's a few points that my son made. The, my, my first son, Austin, in 2011, uh, when he gave, when he came back, I asked him, "Now that you've been away for a while, tell me some of the impacts." And of course, he said education was the big one. He was just, you know, he was almost irritated with Americans in particular that they just don't understand what they have. Uh, when it comes to the access to universities and higher education. But he also said it was a, uh, he, he really learned tolerance because, you know, uh, there are some times, uh, maybe in China, for example, that the, the Chinese just got inside of his space bubble. He didn't like that, or they were a little bit more abrasive and such. But, you know, at the end of the day, he looked at it as, you know, that's how they've come along. And there's who knows what has brought them to their ways as as it is with different people everywhere. So who am I to judge? And I just need to be more tolerant of who they are and, and why and where they may be coming from, because I don't know. Um, so as long as they're not trying to hurt me, which they weren't, um, then that was something he really took away from the trip is a, to- a level of tolerance with different people everywhere. That's fantastic. If only we could teach all of our people that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's a book all to itself. <laughs> awesome. Well, I've enjoyed this conversation. It's always fun to uh, talk about travel. I always enjoy it. And I think that travelers are some of the most interesting people. So if someone wants to uh, hear more about your stories, uh, tell me about the book. Well, the book, the first one is goes over the 2011 journey, which we've talked about a little bit here. And it really tells the backstories of, of everything that we ran across, points of of interest that I thought were unique and uh, interesting, and uh, and I wrote it in a way that people could, if they want to sit down as uh, armchair adventurers and just kind of go on a trip, they could. There's a political aspect, there's a religious aspect in there, because it's just the way that the world is. It's put together different ways. And it's written almost in more of a, a diary or journal format, so it's a little bit easier to keep up with day by day where we were, what we were doing. But uh, I tried to make it in a in a way to where a reader could pull from it what they wanted, uh, and hopefully take a little something away about uh, the the commonality of all of us everywhere, uh, even though we may put on our shirts a little bit differently or they may have a different look or color to them, that we're still under the guise of humanity, and that's a pretty great thing. Beautifully said, sir. So where can someone find out more about you? Do you have a, a blog or um, someplace you recommend they go? Well, I thank you for asking. Yeah, probably the easiest is uh, uh, gradyhicks.com. And that really drives more of, you know, introducing the book. But it, But there's also a tab up there that has blog. And that shows all three journeys and everything that we have done um, from day one. And it lists out our tasks and challenges and what we were supposed to do and how it fared. There's a lot of pictures of each day. There's some history. So it's kind of interesting to read a lot of data. And I'm trying to continue to update it and make it a little bit better. So it's, uh, But it's, it's pretty well laid out. And uh, so that's a that's a nice way. And I think there's ways to communicate on there. I, mean, I, I wish I, I wish I could say I'm more tech savvy, but I, there are there are ways to to communicate there too with uh, questions and answers and such. And but uh, that's that's probably the easiest. Gradyhicks.com. Gradyhicks.com. Simple, simple, simple. Well, thank you so much, Grady, for your time and uh, sharing your stories with us. I really enjoyed it. 
Danny, this has been fantastic. Great questions, fantastic insight, and to, to visit with somebody that has been out there in the field and traveled always makes it a lot better. Thanks, Grady. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.